So, Mel, you're going to stick around and help me kind of stay on point and interact and and all moderator. of that. Be the moderator. Yeah. Be the facilitator. I'm really excited that all of you are here this morning. Um, obviously, the excitement of the email paid off, and you got here, and we're glad that you are here. We've been on such a journey as a church, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, but we just had an amazing meeting with our staff and leadership council, which is our board, um, on Wednesday. We spent eight hours together, um, not just uh, responding to the surveys, which we did, and we will talk to you about that too, not today, but um, specifically talking about our vision as this church, um, as who Grace Point is right now as a progressive Christian community, and to clarify that vision and to articulate it, because we know many of you have lots of questions. And there's been lots of concerns, too, about who we are and what do we believe and where are we headed, and so that is what this morning is all about. Yeah, definition is a strong word, but clarity, I think, is clarity. right. I mean, people, any time you're a part of a progressive movement, you're going to be pushing the envelope you're going to be pushing the envelope, the extremes, the borders, and you're going to even have people within the movement that you're a part of questioning if you're even a Christian. And so the question has been, and, and I grew up in that kind of a movement, the little Pentecostal world that I grew up in, we did not believe Baptist and Church of Christ and Nazarene were Christians. That's strange to some of you, but literally when we studied other world religions we studied the baptist and the methodist and the church of christ those were other world religions to us and barbara a general association of regular baptists pretty close to the same thing a lot of you from church of christ background so this is not a new question are we really christian but um we're going to give some definition to what we mean by progressive christianity because i do believe that it is a fomenting uh, burgeoning, growing movement that 200 years from now we will look back and say this is a huge movement within what we know as the Christian church. So, so are we Christian? Yes. And what does it mean to be Christian? I believe is, are we a Christian community? Yes. What does it mean to be a Christian community? And before we go there though, let's start with progressive spirituality yep. in general. Yeah, progressive spirituality. Are we going to put this, are yep. they going to be able to get up on the screen? So, I'm going to talk a little bit about progressive Christianity. I'm having a hard time writing because last night I was in Memphis at my brother's house and my brother had a dog and that dog is scared of people and I kind of fancy myself the dog whisperer and I found out last night that I am not the dog whisperer and I got bit worse than I have ever been bit last night down to the bone so if you have to take over writing for me here in a little bit um, let me see if I can do this alright progressive spirituality what is progressive spirituality progressive spirituality essentially has and I didn't say progressive Christianity because friends of mine like AJ Levine a wonderful Jewish woman is a progressive spiritualist a progressive spiritualist or religionist we had an we had a Muslim scholar uh, speak for us not too many months ago and as we sat in the back office and she described her progressive Islamic faith um, the same seeds that I hear in AJ Levine the same seeds that I hear from you I heard in her progressive spirituality holds three essential tenets the first is that there is something creative life force God, ground of all being, Paul Tillich called it. I've always been comfortable with the word God, but there is, there is something to this universe that is more than organic. There is a source. There is something that all of this can be traced back to, that this is a creation and there is a creator or a creative force. Progressive spirituality holds that your idea of the ground of all being the source to that which makes all of this more than organic we should hold we should hold as mystery forgive me if you can't read my scratching here as I kind of adapt to my hurt wrist but God the ground of all being the creator of all things we should hold with a sense of humility we should hold uh, ultimately in a position of mystery uh, Isaiah as high as the heavens are above the earth, I am above you. God said, my ways aren't yours, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. Um, there is a gap, there is a distance. God can be pointed to, the ground of all being can be pointed at. We can speak with language that is metaphoric, but we can never capture this fully. Before you get too far, can you tease out the four different categories, the theism, theism, panentheism? There are four major ways that most people view 
the creative force at the base of the universe. I come from a background that most of you do, and that is theocentrism. We hold theos, God, as a central individual person, kind of the grandpa in the sky. Now grandma, since the march yesterday, it's grandma in the sky. So, yes, we hold God as this individual being that we relate to. God is wholly other and distinct from us. So that's theocentrism. A lot of people, a lot of Christian people, uh, hold God uh, panentheistically. Not pantheistically. Pantheism says that God is the sum of all things. Pan, all, theism, speaking to God. So pantheists say God is everything combined, from the doorknob to the people to the rocks, Everything in the universe, God is the sum total of that. Panentheism departs for that. There's a little in between the pan and the theism. Panentheism says that God is not everything, but God infuses everything. In him, we move, we live, we have our very being. So that's panentheism. And then there's deism. Uh, deism deism is, this, is uh, more than this, but essentially the idea that God has created the material universe and God is not micromanaging interrupting and pulling strings all the time. The old adage was that God wound us up like an eight-day clock and is backed off and is just letting us evolutionary, evolutionarily play out. There are other ways of seeing God, and I'd be interested at some point for us to converse here in the congregation because Christians aren't just followers of Jesus. We're people who essentially hold God as mystery. And there are people in this room right now, if we took 15 minutes just to listen to your view of God, the most of you would fit into one of those four categories, but there would probably be different categories as well. So, but within progressive spirituality, any of those categories could be held. Absolutely. With our, in our council of leaders, yep. um, probably three of those, yeah, a, a solid three of those. I come, I'm, I come from a theocentric background. God is individual, and I still very much relate to God that way. I don't do that dogmatically. And I certainly think that that is my way, and it's my culture, it's the way my brain is wired. Mel, on the other hand, uh, is far more panentheistic, I, I would say, than, than I am. So we kind of come at God from two different angles. Neither capture, they both point. Uh, the, the second tenet of progressive spirituality, whether it's A.J. Levine and progressive Jews uh, or a progressive Buddhist, says that life is gift. At the bedrock of good spirituality is a sense of gratitude. A sense that we who might not have been are. And that life has been given to us as a gift. If there is a creator, then we are the created. And if we are anything, we are the decision of the creator not to be alone. We are the decision, one great Jewish theologian said, creation was the great withdrawal of God. God was everything and God withdrew from that. Much like a parent giving space for children, God decided for there to be other. And so at the base of life is this sense that life is gift. And the third basic tenet of progressive spirituality is that this gift, I should say this first, life is a, is a gift to be enjoyed. And life is a gift to be shared. So there should be mutuality and there should be love. Life is not just your gift, life is the gift of all people. And for most progressive spiritualists, life is not only a gift to other people, life is a gift that's shared even beyond the, uh, the human family. So progressive spirituality looks for human flourishing, but it also looks for creation's flourishing. And we should live together with mutuality and love and there is a sharing. One other tenet of progressive spirituality is that life is to be shared, as I've said, but that does not equal what we refer to as proselyting, evangelizing, and converting other people. When I sat with my friend A.J. Levine, who does not have a specifically Christian view of the universe, but she is a New Testament scholar and knows more about Jesus than just about anybody I know and has deep admiration for him as a Jewish rabbi and understands Christianity greatly. When I sit with her and I listen to her life and I listen to her love, I have no sense of needing to convert her. I feel like A.J. Levine is just fine 
and I don't feel a need to evangelize or proselyte her into my faith. I do believe in sharing faith, but what we used to call sharing faith was really imposing faith, right? Sharing faith means that you sit down with someone and you share a meal. That means they get to share their faith. And they're not just supposed to be taking yours legitimately, you're supposed to be taking theirs legitimately. So these things are at the heart of progressive spirituality. Mel, should we add anything there? Should we draw a little bigger chart now? Well, just and include, so within progressive spirituality, you've got progressive Islam, progressive Buddhists, progressive Muslims, progressive, even humanists. Um, Some of them would share this because their view of God is maybe not theistic, but more of the other. And so all within that all fits under progressive spirituality. So. And then each distinct, so each distinct. This is really working out great here. (laughs) How about I'll clean it while you clarify what each distinct group like the, yeah. the three different things. I got you. Thank you. So, <laughs> progressive spirituality is manifest by progressive Buddhists, progressive Hindus, progressive Jews like A.J. Levine, progressive Islamic people, progressive what is referred to as New Thought, and it's also shared by progressive Christians. Now. The problem is you might want to tell them to get another rag because when it gets wet like this, it's hard to... So if we put progressive spirituality up here, progressive spirituality breaks down into a lot of different groups. You have the progressive Buddhists, you have progressive Muslims, you have progressive Jews, you have progressive Christians, you have progressive New Thought, you have progressive you name it. As a progressive Christian or as a progressive New Thought or as a progressive Muslim, a lot of people said, what is the difference between this and the Unitarian Universalist Church? Well, that's a really great question. Progressive spirituality certainly does hold within itself this idea that the Unitarians have espoused, but the basic premise of a Unitarian Church, which we are not a Unitarian Church, but the basic premise of a Unitarian Church, which I greatly respect, is that instead of picking one of these cultural iterations of progressive spirituality, they say, why should we locate ourselves and contain ourselves in one? So Unitarians take all of these and try to use them as uh, as a palette, as a cadre of wisdom to draw from, claiming none of them as a primary base. And that's a key term. The Unitarians do not claim any of these as a primary base. But they claim all of them as a source of wisdom. The difference between Unitarians and progressive Christians, per se, se, is progressive Christians have great respect. We've shown that as a congregation. You've shown that, I mean, corporately and individually. We have always shown great respect for people of other faiths. We've talked for a long time about the three ways to look at religious thought, pluralism, inclusivism, and exclusivism. Most of us come from an exclusivistic background that says there is a God, God has spoken to the world, and our group has gotten that message. And anybody else who claims a message other than our group, these people need to be converted because they are lost and separated from God, right? That's what most of us grew up with. That's an exclusivistic view of religion. Unitarians hold a very pluralistic view of religion and they say that there is a God, God is drawn to humans, humans are drawn to God, and that magnetic drawing, that magnetic attraction is so powerful and so profound that it creates interaction between the human and the divine. And when the human and the divine interact, all over the world when the human and divine interact, throughout the ages when the human and the divine interact, The stories are so profound that they have to be told. And in the telling and the retelling of our individual stories, whether that's the little Pentecostal world I grew up in, Northeast Arkansas, or Glenn, Native American spirituality, which you fancy, these stories are so profound, in the telling and the retelling, stories begin to accumulate. And those stories are generally expressed within the language of the culture in which they happened. Not just the words of a culture, but the language, the worldview of that culture. Over time, the accumulation of stories generationally begins to create what we know as religion. Religions formalize. 
pluralism says, how dare one group of people looking to the sky, looking into their heart, looking into their children's eye, how dare one group of people based upon the whimsy or caprice of geography, how dare they say theirs is the only legitimate story of human interaction with the divine. And so the good pluralist would say all of these are legitimate cultural expressions of real experiences with God. Between pluralism and exclusivism, between Jerry Falwell and Oprah, <laughs> there is inclusivism. And inclusivism is something that a lot of progressive spirit, religionists or spiritualist progressive Christians for sure, inclusivism is something that we like. And Christianity has built a strong case in progressive circles for inclusivism. Inclusivism rejects exclusivism. How dare us think we are the only ones who've had legitimate experience with God. It also looks at religious expression and says, are you kidding me that all religious expression is equivalent? Radical Islam cannot be compared, cannot be called equivalently good to moderate or liberal Islam. So not all religious expression is good and some are better than others. And so pluralism rings hollow for some people because they do believe that there are better expressions than others. Generally, inclusivists are those who reject exclusivism, can't quite land in pluralism, but say, listen, our revelation is so complete that when other people get something that sounds like our revelation, even if they put their words to it and their stories to it, it's still the same thing. Just like the fellow at the Hindu temple when we were touring all the different churches, the fellow at the Hindu temple, the leader there, looked out at all of us, and he's a liberal Hindu, he's a progressive Hindu. He looked out at all of, all of you that were there, and he said, you good Christians don't know it, but you're actually good Hindus. This is what C.S. Lewis believes. When C.S. Lewis said, one day, people are going to stand before Aslan. You remember the lion that was the type of Christ? And they're going to say, oh, Aslan, we didn't know it was you. And Aslan's going to say to those who came from the other part of the world where Aslan had never been expressed, Aslan is going to say to them, no, 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 you knew me, today you learn my name. Billy Graham, later in life, leaned toward these uh, kinds of things in some of his conversations, some of his interviews, and even in one of his books, that the inclusivist Christian says, you know what? Yes, Jesus is the only wise Savior, but he's going to save everybody. And his redemption is going to be full. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So there's a lot of inclusivistic Christians who say ours is the coup de grace of revelation. These are sufficient and they will not cost you your soul, but ultimately this is the best expression. So think about that for a minute. Are you a pluralist? Are you an inclusivist or are you an exclusivist? Progressive Christians, progressive Buddhists, progressive Jews like A.J. Levine. The thing that makes you distinctly a progressive, I mentioned a moment ago, the four tenets that I put up here. God is mystery, life is gift, mutuality, and not having a need to evangelize. That's what makes a person progressive, whether they're Christian or whether they're a new thought or whether they're a Jew. But there are two, there are two uh, letters here in the nomenclature. The other is your particular religion. Now, what makes us Christian? Whether you're a conservative Christian or whether you're a progressive Christian, the thing that makes you a Christian or the things that makes you a Jew is all of us within these religions have three particular things that are distinct to us. The first is every religion has a narrative. You guys know our narrative. It's an atom to apostolic narrative. It's a two-atom narrative, some would call it. The first atom that was created, and then the second atom, the man, Jesus Christ. You know our narrative? We have a story that goes something like this. It has linchpins in it. It's Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Egypt, Moses, deliverance, Joshua, kingdom, divided kingdom, Saul, David, Solomon, prophetic era, the didactic of the prophet, exile, the development of scripture, 
the return home, the longing for a Messiah, Christ, Bethlehem, the early church, Jerusalem, the outpouring of the Spirit, the apostolic era. We have a narrative, don't we? Every religion has a narrative. And for Christians, our narrative is the narrative that I just expressed. Every religion also, whether you're a Hindu or whether you're a Christian, has a glossary of terms. Anybody ever heard of Christianese? Anybody live in the South? <laughs> Praise the Lord, everybody. God bless you. Sin, Holy Spirit, rapture, heaven, hell. Every religion has a glossary of terms or a lexicon that's specific to them. Okay, what else every religion has? These things are not the things that make you a progressive. These things that make, are what make you a distinct progressive. I am a progressive Christian. I have a narrative. I don't think it's the only narrative that's ever been, and I don't even try to argue that it's the best narrative. It's my narrative. I grew up in Arkansas. I still have an affinity for the Razorbacks. I don't think they're the only team. I don't think it's the only state. But it's my state. It's where I come from. I live in Tennessee now. I'm a world citizen. I have levels of allegiance. There's a taxonomy. It's called classification in science. There are orders. There are families. There are genus. There are genus species. The thing that makes us Christian or Muslim is our narrative, our glossary of terms. And then here's a big one. Every religion has symbols or sacraments. Think about it. What are the sacraments and symbols, the tools that are distinct to us as a Christian faith? We compliment and applaud what happens at Congregation Micah. We thank God for what happens at the Hindu temple. But there are things that happen differently here that are a part of our distinctives. Probably the three or four or five largest distinctives for us are symbols. The first symbol would be the Bible, specifically for Christians, the New Testament, right? That's, a, that's, that's one of ours. We don't impose that on anybody else, but that's ours. That's a part of our symbolism. Second is baptism. And the third is communion. If you go to Congregation Micah, you're not going to take communion and you're not going to be baptized. If you come to Grace Point, a progressive Christian church... I remember one Sunday, A.J. was here, my Jewish friend was here speaking about the love of God and even reconciling herself to the message of Jesus. We took communion that day. I don't know if she took communion with us or not. Um, that, that's interesting. I think she probably could have. But these things are distinct to us. What else, Mel? All right, so one of the things that you have to look at when you're thinking about your symbols, your narrative, and especially your glossary of terms, those things that make us distinctly Christian within the bounds of progressive Christianity, is we are continually asking ourselves the question as progressives, does this word, think about it for a moment, are there religious words that have gotten worn out for you that leave a bad taste in your mouth? Think about it. We are continually looking at our words, our symbol, and not so much the narrative, but especially our symbols and our words, and we're asking ourselves as progressives, do we continue with these words always seeking progressively to reappropriate them in a modern time, or do we replace the words? That's an important question. Think about civil rights, think about the development of race relationships, think about the plight of the black person, the African American here in our country. National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, that sticks in our throat now and yet it still is honoring a mission and also honoring a past. Colored Negro, black, Afro-American, person of color, African-American. What happens to words? Words are not the thing, but words point to the thing. 
And there are times when the thing bears so much negativity and pain that the thing cannot escape it. But the next best thing that can be done for the thing or the reality is to send the word that is associated with it off with the pain as a scapegoat. And we get a new word. And people who don't understand that are, are missing a, a large component of what language is all about. Sometimes getting rid of words is not diminishing the thing they point to. Sometimes getting rid of the word is protecting the thing that they point to. And this is a very difficult thing for progressives because among us there are words and there are symbols that carry baggage for some and tremendous import and equity for others. Think about that. Right now in this congregation we could call up things like prayer or what we call worship or even communion and there will be people in this congregation deep and abiding Christians who would say that still moves me and there would be others who would say I have a lot of baggage around that so we're always looking as progressive leaders at our words and at our symbols and we're asking do we replace them or do we reappropriate them now for sentimentalist and nostalgic people like me who lean toward tradition, I don't like replacing words. I, I, I love going home. I was with all of my family yesterday. I'm a sentimentalist. It leans me toward tradition. Some of my most progressive friends sound very conservative because they still use traditional language. Their ideas are deeply progressive, but they hold on to traditional language. How many of you would call yourself a sentimentalist, nostalgic, and you love tradition? How many? How many aren't so big on tradition? Look at that, split right down the middle. So do we replace the word or re reappropriate? Well, the question there, and I'll move on, the question there is, does the word have more baggage or more equity? So that's, that is, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong word here, but that, I'll come back to that. Thank you, Mel, for drawing my, Sometimes you got to know when to hold up and know when to fold up and know when to shut up. Christianity. This church is a progressive Christian church, but let's talk about Christianity for a minute. Christianity divides solidly into two major camps. And this line is a very important line. The first camp, and I don't like labels, we refer to as the conservative camp. And the second camp, we refer to our camp as the progressive camp. The major dividing line between conservative and progressive Christianity comes down to view of God and view of humanity. It comes down to the question of what is the story of God with creation. Conservative Christianity for the first 2,000 years has built a very traditional solid message on the grounds that I would refer to as the grounds of sin, separation, and salvation. The basic premise of Christianity in its first 2,000 years, by and large, has been that human beings are born separated from God by sin and that the only way of being reunited to God is through a blood-atoning sacrifice that was made in Jesus that reunites people to God. I often say that the good news of reunion with God is actually trumped by great news that you don't need reunited with God because you've never been separated. So we've spent several years around here even revisiting the biblical stories. You remember the Adam and Eve story? They sinned and God still came. Even in the garden story, there isn't a sense that God is inherently separated from humankind. There is a sense that when God came to them, not separating because of sin, they hid themselves because of shame. And we've really been looking at that narrative uh, and, and, and revisiting and reshaping and reappropriating that narrative. But... Suffice to say, conservative Christianity says that human beings are inherently separated. The dividing line between conservative Christianity and more, more progressive form of Christianity falls on that line of demarcation. That is the fault line. Progressive Christians believe in inherent union. We don't look at our children and set them on a course of ultimately being reunited through Sunday school and communion and baptism with God, but we look at our children, we know that they are inherently joined to God. And if there is a Christian salvation, it is recognizing that you have always been safe. So we're not trying to get people to come back to God. 
We believe the story is the story of the prodigal. The story was born in union with the father and then he estranged himself through a series, a litany of sin and shame. But when he came home, his salvific act wasn't coming home to be who he wasn't. It was coming home to whom he had always been. And so that is the idea of progressive Christian salvation. That we're born in union with God and there is a journey, but that journey is not a journey of change as much as it's a journey of realizing who we've always been. So that's progressive Christianity. Anything, I, I would say, I, I'll say this to the folks that have been here a long time. 14 years ago when we started this church, we had a large group of people who could even have been classified wonderful people, all of us, as fundamentalist or even evangelical. I spent the first six or seven years of this church doing what progressive Christians don't do now. It's one of the big revelations for me. And that as I spent the first six to 12 years of this church trying to convert people to my way of thinking. Even though I was incredibly progressive in my ideas, I still carried a very evangelical ethos because I thought I needed to change people. And so the first six years of this church, I was efforting. And those that were there, remember, we were efforting to move people from fundamentalism to what I would call kind of a Tony Campolo, Philip Yancey Christianity, a more moderate Christianity. The big issue those first six or seven years was what Brian's going to be dealing with in the class, and that was a view of Scripture. We spent most of our time, before we tried to reshape people's view about gay people or about women or divorcees, we were trying to reshape people's view of God. But before we could even reshape people's view of God, we found out we had to reshape people's view of Scripture. And it was the misreading of the biblical text that we think distorts much of what is known now as Christianity. So we spent those years trying to get people away from things like biblical literalism and inerrancy. We really didn't think the chief fight in the universe was to convince people that the earth was only 6,000 years old. And so once we got people to inerrancy, we spent the next six years reading the Bible better, and it began to reshape our view of God. It began to reshape our view of Jesus. It began to reshape our view of ourselves. It began to reshape our view of sexuality, and it was the outgrowth of that, just the natural outgrowth that led us to the LGBT inclusion statement. And I would say this dividing line between conservatives and progressives is all about inclusion. And it's not about LGBTQ plus inclusion, and it's not about having women pastors and women elders and leaders, but that dividing line is all about inclusion. We believe the entire earth is named as children of God and all are included. And we believe that the journey of the human soul is to discover the reality of who they have always been. It's not a linear journey from child of the devil to child of God, it's a circular journey to come home to yourself. So this line is all about inclusion. So now it's going to get, what do you mean? She said now it's going to get exciting. I thought that was riveting just already. <laughs> all right. So this is what, the, leading to the homework and the little card uh, that you had in your seat there. Let's ask the question, what is progressive Christianity? And let's admit to ourselves we are not called progressive Buddhists, so our central question is not about Buddha. We're not progressive Muslims, so our central question is not about Muhammad. We are progressive Christians, and at the root of that word Christian is the word Christ. So our question is a question of who is Jesus? We've put some numbers up here, and these numbers, uh, higher numbers are not better than lower numbers, and lower numbers are not better than higher numbers. We're just... We, Color would probably be the best way to express this spectrum, but we put numbers up here nonetheless just to kind of help us fix our minds around these things. But there are four ways, four primary ways that progressive Christian people see Jesus Christ. And these four ways are expressed in this congregation all the time. Now, there may be others, but these are the four primary ways that would catch 98% of us. And I want to say this about progressive Christianity. I remember I asked A.J. Levine, I said, why do liberal Jews and Orthodox Jews and conservative Jews and traditional Jews and modern Jews, why do you guys seem to get along better than we Christians do? She said, well, we vehemently disagree about who God is and who mankind is. But she said, we do not believe 
that people's eternal destinies are dependent. People's eternal salvation, whether they burn forever or get to live in, in eternal Beverly Hills forever, we do not believe that depends upon what you believe. And, and that made a lot of sense to me. Most of us grew up feeling a heavy onus, a heavy burden on our belief system because from a child I knew, based upon what I believed or didn't believe, I could either literally be living in a mansion with a street of gold outside. Five, six, seven years old, I understood if I believed wrong, I could burn forever with worms eating me and people seething, gnawing, clawing in a cauldron of God's judgment. That's a heavy burden for an eight-year-old mind. And I knew that the difference between, there's no middle ground, the difference between those two extremities was whether I believed right. Progressive Christianity takes the onus off of believing. Now we believe. We believe that belief impacts your life greatly. But it does not. Doctrinal understanding and getting your belief system right is not the grounds on which your eternal destiny is decided. Once that burden is off, there's a little bit of an ability to relax and actually listen to one another. There's an ability to relax and actually learn from one another. And so these are the four Jesuses. I remember Brian McLaren in his book, Generous Orthodoxy, talked about the seven Jesuses that he had gone through in his life. Philip Yancey wrote a quintessential book called The Jesus That I Never Knew. And then Marcus Borg famously talked about meeting Jesus again for the first time. How many of you know what I mean by this developing idea of Jesus? The Jesus that you understand now is very different. Would you raise your hand? It's different than the Jesus that you grew up with. Okay, that's fine because that's what Christians call the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus even said that in the Gospel of John. He looked at his disciples who had walked with him and talked with him with physical proximity for three years. He looked at people like his mother who birthed him, and he said, I got a lot of things to tell you about me, but you can't hear them now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you all things about me. Progressive Christianity believes that did not end at the end of the first century with the death of the last apostle or the development of the creeds in the fifth, sixth, and sixth, seventh century. Progressive Christianity believes that is the work of spirit to continue unfold the reality of Jesus among us. Sitting around you right now are people who hold one of these four views. And I wonder which view you hold. As you move from traditional Christianity into progressive Christianity, generally those who have just first crossed, and, and I do want to emphasize this, I do not believe that movement in this direction, once you get in this camp, I don't believe movement in this direction means that you're getting a better idea of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the four Jesuses I'm going to show you, I hold all of them as plausible. Just a couple of days ago, I literally by myself put pad, uh, pen to paper and asked myself, which of these seems at this point more plausible to you? And sometimes that's interchangeable for me. All of these are plausible. The first and the most traditional, obviously it's the closest to traditional Christianity, is the creedal Jesus. This is the Jesus that was developed between the first and the seventh century as a group of monotheistic Jewish people followed a messianic figure named Jesus who often spoke of a father and a son and a Holy Spirit. For five to six, seven centuries, the better part of those centuries, the early church, the apostolic fathers, the descendants of the apostles wrestled with how we could be monotheistic and still have three somethings that were all God. And the model that was developed was a model called the Trinity. Interestingly, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It is a theological development. It's a theological metaphor that points the church beliefs to a reality. So the creedal Jesus of the first seven centuries of the church is, a, is the Jesus that many people settled on. And a mission here. 
I am a rare bird. I grew up in the evangelical Pentecostal world, and I grew up a part of a denomination that did not believe in the Trinity. My people were called oneness Christians, so this never has been a big deal for me. I've always understood it very semantically. I personally believe the oneness Christians that I grew up with who were called modalist, uh, they had a view of the Godhead that God was Father, God was Son, God was Holy Spirit, and these were roles more than persons. Like one, I was Stan Jr.'s baseball coach, his father, and his pastor. It, it's all me, but I play three distinct roles. That's called modalism in the third and fourth century of the church, and it was rejected at heresy. My little group of Pentecostals didn't know that, and we thought we'd found a revelation of the oneness of the Godhead, so we broke off from the assembly of God and thought, oh, y'all have been going to hell for the last 80 years. So I, I never really had this view, but I understand this view very well. Are you a creedal Jesus follower? Is the Trinitarian doctrine of homoousius, that Jesus was of the same substance of the Father, that Jesus was co-eternal, co-existent, co-eternal, co-existence, and co-substantial, of the same substance, of the same time, always with the Father? And then you've got to include the Holy Spirit in there as well. Are you a creedal Christian for whom the question of the divinity of Christ, specifically the deity of Christ, that Jesus was very God of very God, that he was distinctly an exceptional expression of the Father in flesh as the eternal Son of God. That's a creedal Christian or a creedal Jesus follower. So Jesus is deity. The second group, the second group holds Jesus also messianically. These first two groups, these first two groups are very big on what is referred to as messianic or Christological Christianity. They believed that God was very intentional in sending to earth a person named Jesus. Whether that was his eternal begotten son who was the second member of a trinity or the great moral exemplar, the great moral example. Both of these are a son of God, but the question here is all about the divinity or deity of Christ, whereas here the humanity of Christ is fully accepted. He was the sent one. He was the Christos. He was the Messiah sent from God, and God with great intention sent Jesus. Both of these believed that Jesus was sent from heaven on a missive to interrupt this world and to do something salvifically for this, uh, for this universe. So are you a creedal Jesus follower or do you really not worry too much about the thickness of theology but you do believe that God with great intention sent a missive, a Messiah into the world and he is the great teacher. The third group is a group that focuses on a term that over the last 50 years has developed called Christ Consciousness. Richard Rohr, who's a favorite author of a lot of you folk, Richard Rohr refers to this concept as the Cosmic Christ. This idea is very similar to Jesus as the great teacher, moral exemplar, but this idea is less. This comes down to your view of God. People on this side that hold these two ideas see God very theocentrically as an individual who with intention does things. People on this side of progressive Christianity see God more panentheistically as the ground of all being and instead of operating with great specific intention and micromanaging intention, these people see God working more evolutionarily. So God is involved either way, but here God scoops up dust and makes a person here, God creates dust, and the irrepressible image of God over time evolutionary comes out of that dust. There are many, many people who do not hold this theocentric intentional view of God as Christians. So they don't see that Jesus necessarily was an intended missive of God messianically, but what they do believe is that the image of God is so irrepress irrepressibly placed in creation that the image of God bubbles up in creation and the ultimate expression of the image of God is within the human genome. And within the human genome, the irrepressible image of God periodically from time to time for reasons we don't understand 
spits out incredibly special people. Machiavelli's and Descartes and Aristotle's and Pascal's, Einstein's and Jesus. This group of people believe that Jesus was incredibly special. He was a human being born like all the rest of us who found Christ consciousness. Instead of messianic Christness being a missive intentionally sent from God, messianic Christness is a presence, a reality, an understanding of God that is embedded in the human family. And periodically, just as Einstein did not create the theory of relativity, he only discovered it, Jesus as a spiritual Einstein found Christ consciousness. And after finding Christ consciousness through this evolutionary process as a human being, he certainly is our teacher and we follow him just as they as a moral example. But it's more about an evolutionary process than an intentional messianic missive. The third group, or the fourth group rather, is a group that really Joseph Campbell expressed best in his incredible PBS series called The Power of Myth. And in his incredible book that I would recommend to all of you to read uh, called The Hero Who Wears a Thousand Faces. Joseph Campbell says from time to time heroes, religious heroes develop in communities. And Campbell said it is not necessary that that hero be a historical figure, but the hero can be a historical figure. But whether a historical figure or a non-historical figure, from time to time, the image of God inside of people, the religious hunger inside of people, locate their religious hunger on an expression, an individual. And they take that individual, even if it's a historically bound individual, and they take that kernel of life that is the individual and they mix it with bushels of longing, religious longing. And they create heroes. Now, a lot of people, a lot of atheists have said Christians, they hold Jesus like Santa Claus. And we've always been offended by that, but stop for a minute. Is there anybody here, if there is, please don't raise your hand because you'll ruin my point. Um, is there anybody here who thinks Santa Claus is a bad deal? I'm about to make Campbell's point for him. You don't think Santa Claus, matter of fact, you know that Santa Claus is a really good deal. You know that Santa Claus is a mix of the longing for humans to celebrate life and gifts, receiving and giving. The mix of that hunger and longing in humans for mutuality and benevolence, for family and tradition. Santa Claus is a mix of that internal longing and a historical figure named Saint Nicholas. Joseph Campbell said, we create our heroes. People like John Shelby Spong, who is a writer that I read after much, and a brilliant scholar. Even Marcus Borg leans this way. Diana Butler Bass, some of my heroes, say that really if you read the Mark and Gospel and then the Matthew and Luke and Gospels and then the Gospel of John, the movement that has been born out of Jesus is bigger in substance than the amount of material we actually started with. Jesus has grown. Accretions have happened. And these accretions are not negative. They are not bad. They are actually very good things because the hero, before it is located in the other, the hero actually begins in us. And so these heroes become legendary figures. Legendary figures that we follow after. Creedal Jesus... Moral exemplar teacher Jesus sent Messiah from a God with intention. Cosmic Christ consciousness in the person named Jesus. Legendary G Jesus, the hero who wears a thousand faces and specifically here, a Bronskin Galilean named Jesus. Which of these is the question? Which of these do you most resonate with? Now, automatically, because so many of us become, come from evangelical and Catholic backgrounds, even though you guys live here, 98% of the people in this room live here, 
to put it on the board and actually name it makes us start looking around. And we start getting fidgety and nervous. Looks on your face, looks scared. Some of you even dour. Because this kind of conversation in reality, Dale, makes us nervous. Why does it make us nervous? Because we lived the bulk of our life, our growing up, JW, we lived over here. We learned a way of being over here that is still in us at a cellular level. We learned a level of fear. We learned a level of misgiving. We learned a way of being so unsettled in our spirit. I will forever be marked by the fact that I was... It marks what I do. It marks who I am as a pastor and as an individual. I will forever be marked. No matter how theoretically I am here, there is still Justin, a little eight-year-old boy inside of me that sat in church services and shook. I still, Buck Barbie, know what it feels like. I can taste it when I used to walk into the house, nine years old, and I couldn't find my mom, and I thought that I had missed the rapture, and I was gonna burn forever. Rachel, you grew up with it. That stuff imprints us. We lived here long, and this is still a part of our cellular memory. But Grace Point is a part of progressive Christianity. And if you wanna know doctrinally, if you're needing doctrinally, a clarifying line. Here is the clarifying line. Mel, there are no clarifying lines over here. These are just possibilities. And I would long, ultimately, for our congregation to be able lovingly to explore the beauty and the reality of all of this in a space of spiritual and intellectual and emotional freedom so that we could ultimately be advantaged by this conversation and move on to the real matter at hand. And that is that this one named Jesus in some cosmic sense of judgment is one day not going to say to us, well believed, but Lee, he's gonna to say to us, well done. And there's not gonna be a judgment day here metaphysically or literally where Jesus looks at a group of people and draws the line and says, hell, heaven. But this guy, <laughs> still makes sense to me because he summarizes the whole dang thing by saying, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. What do you believe, Jesus? Listen. I think Buddhists are going to hell. No. I was naked and you clothed me. I was groped and you stood up for me. I was rejected and you drew me in. And while conservatives and others traditionalists wait for him to delineate between belief systems, Jesus simply says, I was hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, prisoner, sick. That is the Christ. You want to know who Christ is doctrinally? The next hurting person you meet. And my progressive Buddhist friends have a different narrative and a different glossary and a different set of symbols, but they are saying the exact same thing through a narrative and a cultural expression other than mine. That is the heart of progressive Christianity. And ultimately, we want, I spent the first 14 years of my life here with an inertia to get people to believe the right things. By hook or crook, by stumbling, somehow, I am now surrounded by a group of people who live essentially in this world 
And I have no more desire to change anybody's mind because that's not my mission and it's not my call. And I've lost way too many friends and way too many congregations trying to get people to see it my way. The next 14 years of my life, Jeff, I just like to settle down with a group of people who call themselves progressive Christians and like Christian community. And as Melissa said to the council the other day, the real answer isn't to keep moving this way. The real answer is to move this way, to dig down into the life of Jesus and actually do something that reshapes the world inside of our own hearts and Andy outside of this building to live out an ethic and the love of Jesus that this world is so desperately in need of. Can you say amen? Okay, so here's the fun part. Good job, first of all. Good job explaining all that. This is the fun part. We did this together as a staff on Tuesday, and we all located ourselves within this spectrum. We put down a number. We're not going to tell you what that is today. We did this with the board and the council on Wednesday, and we all had them. We actually <laughs> had written down what we thought they would be, and except for one person, the staff nailed it. We knew exactly where each of our council members are on this spectrum. So we're going to share all of that with you next week. What we would love for you to do, there was a little card on your seat when you got in, we would love for you to put down where you think you are on this spectrum. And again, there's no right answer, there's no wrong answer, but we would love for you to put down where you think you are. If you want to remain anonymous, you can just write down that number and drop it in the offering plate. If you want to put your name down and there's no fear in saying where you are, we would encourage that. Add your name to it and let us know. But we're going to collect all of that. We'll actually do a little bit of online survey as well. And then next week, we'll come back together and see. We'll let you know where the staff is primarily located. We'll let you know where the board council is primarily located and where the percentage of all of you are. And we're really interested to figure this that out. Was, that was an interesting time. When our staff did it, yep. when we shared our number. So, Creedal Jesus, 10. Moral Exemplar, Teacher, Messiah, 7.5. Christ Consciousness, Cosmic Christ, Richard Rohr's deal, 5. Now, interesting thing for all you who love Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr locates himself practically theologically in this area. This is Richard Rohr. And you know what he does, Steve? Because he's a traditionalist that loves tradition, he circles back and uses this language. William Paul Long, uh, Young, Jacques Rene, what's the guy's name, the, the brilliant Baxter. theologian? Baxter Kruger. Frank, Baxter Kruger. Perry Caresis and his definition of the Trinity. The first guys in the first 700 years who talked about the Trinity, if you would have told them it was a divine dance in perichoresis and not a salvific model of a son interceding with a male father to get people saved, they would have called you a heretic. What Baxter Kruger and Richard Rohr does is they live right down here practically but they know that they're Christian and they redeem the symbol that is so important to them called the Trinity. And they don't replace the language, they reappropriate the term. And it's more brilliant, it's, it's a brilliant thing. So there are people that are like, well, I think I'm this because I use this language. But I, so just know that. There are people that live down here that circle back, they're traditionalist. And I kind of lean that way. When Mel and I and Anna went through this and, and looked at the numbers, you know, zero, 2.55, when we located ourselves, she just said it, it was really, I think it was heartening. When we sat with the council the other day, five of the six council members said their number and we would pull the paper away and we had guessed every one of them within a half point. We've been working together hard at this. We know one another. And... The thing that Mel and I never want to do again, because for 14 years, as I was trying to change people, it at times looked like I, as a pastor, wasn't living authentically because I wouldn't state my full truth as I was trying to bring people along. It cost me a lot of friends and a lot of heartache. I ain't never doing that again. You need to know those who labor among you. The reason we're not going to tell you our number today is because we don't want to impose it on you. And the board, we don't want to impose it upon you. Think about your number. Locate yourself here. And next week, what are we going to do? Are we just going to come back and kind of start with that? We're going to start with that. We're like, all those that are between 10.75, they're going to sit over here. And all those 7.5 to 5 are going to be here. 
and 2.5, and then the zeros. And anybody lower than zero, there's a door right over there. <laughs> so one more time. Creedal Jesus, 10. Moral Exemplar, 7.5. Christ Consciousness, 5. Hero Jesus, 2.5 to 0. Yeah. And I think you sort of confuse them with the ruler Baxter. If you want to put... I'm over here, but I'm more of a traditionalist. Maybe put your number plus traditionalist if that represents your similar to I don't, I don't think I confused them. I think I confused you. Mm -hmm. I think they were tracking perfectly right along with me. <laughs> Remember, I'm the moderator. <laughs> yep, Ron. Okay, great. What? Oh, oh pencils. Does anybody need... need a pencil? We, want, we would love for you to, if you know it, to write it down. Raise your hand. Oh, this is so fun. We're so excited to do this. They're coming around. So drop it off in the offering baskets as you leave. Oh, really? They're going to leave them with us? Yeah. Woohoo! And That's if fun. you don't feel comfortable yet... I just work here. I don't know anything. I, true story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you don't want or you don't know yet and you want to wrestle with it, you can email it to us, too, or let us know on our Facebook page. Um, we're headed over to lunch today at Tin Roof 2, going back to that this afternoon, which is right on the other side of the interstate, if you want to join us for that. We have a team building that's going to help us plan out some lunches. We're super excited about building that team. We'll head back to the food court on another day. Okay, I'm afraid to ask, are there any questions? <laughs> hey, you know what? We may do this for two or three weeks. We may take a Sunday night and come yeah. back and just really discuss all of this. We could do a dialogue this. on a Sunday yeah. morning again, too. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, we're honored that you've been here. I'm going to leave this up. I'm sorry we couldn't get the video to work. We had it working right before service, and for whatever reason, it couldn't. You're pointing yes? Yes. You know Probably what? We'll do it in a really nice way. Yes. Yep. 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 Definitely. All right. Let's go to Tin Roof and talk about this stuff. This fabulous. would be fun. And what? That's Tin fabulous. Is that good? Yeah. All right. All right. You're officially dismissed. Thanks for being here today.